0: 1 Timothy chapter 2, It's after a bulk of Paul's letters, before the book of 2 Timothy, and then Titus after that. And last time we looked at uh, 1 Timothy 2, we looked at verses 1 through 7, where we were called to offer our prayers through the one who offered himself for us. So if we see prayer as a type of thread that's running through 1 Timothy 2, Paul's now going to pull on this thread, and it's going to unravel into the broader life of the church. And if you remember from our last sermon in 1 Timothy, I believe that we should see this section of the book to be pushing towards chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul is providing Timothy and the Ephesians for instructions for life in God's household. And in 1 Timothy 2, 8-15, through 15, we will encounter specific instructions both for men and for women who are corporately living before the Lord in this household, the local church. So this passage has individual commands for men and individual commands for women. And if we don't proceed carefully with passages like this one, we can fall into the trap of isolating these commands from Paul's broader instructions to Timothy and the Ephesians. And if we do that, we will end up misrepresenting God's intentions for church life. Now, I'm grateful to be preaching to a congregation that believes God's word is our authority and that it is to be treasured even passages that might be more difficult for us to understand at first glance. So with the Lord's help, my hope is that we will walk away from our time this morning with a better understanding of how God's original intentions for men and women is being carried forth in the local church. My sermon title this morning is God's Image in the Life of the Church. And here is our gospel truth from 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. In his church, God advances his aim for complementary male-female relationships. In his church, God advances his aim for complementary male-female relationships. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read our passage for this morning? First Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. With self control. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, in verses 8 through 12, we're going to walk through our first point this morning, which is God defines gender differences in the congregation. God defines gender differences in the congregation. Now, you may have noticed that this passage begins with the word, then. Selfishly, I kind of wish that the ESV had translated this word, therefore, because then I could have used that old preacher's trick. When you see a therefore, you need to see what it's there for. But instead, I had to come up with my own. Maybe not as good. I'll let you decide. When you see the word, then, you need to ask, why is Paul writing this with his pen? Not bad. Not bad. Well, that's not the point. The point is, we see this word, then, that's linking us earlier in this chapter. Paul says, I desire, then, in verse 8, which links us back to verse 1, where he says, first of all, then. So it's the same word that's expanding on the same topic, and that's prayer. Remember that thread that's running through this chapter. In verse 1, Paul urges prayer in the church, and now in verse 8, he's telling us who should lead in prayer. Look with me at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Some moments ago I mentioned, right, that we're going to see specific commands for men and for women in this passage. And Paul begins with the men in Ephesus. When Paul says that he desires for men to lead in prayer, we shouldn't respond by saying, Ah well, if this is just something that Paul desires, then, you know, what does this have for us today? We believe that Paul is writing these things to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this means that we should understand Paul's desires for the local church to be a reflection of God's desires for the local church. And that means that is no different for us today. So men, the Lord desires that we would lead out in prayer in every place. And here at Redeemer there are several places where men are leading in prayer. For example even just this morning Michael led us in our prayer of thanksgiving where he guided us to look to the Lord with grateful hearts for what he has done for us. In addition to this Ryan led us in our pastoral prayer where he called out to the Lord on our behalf bringing our requests before him and seeking his help. And in both of these prayers, we as a church joined together with these men as they led us to the throne. And similarly, on Wednesday night, Mickey is going to lead us in our time of corporate prayer. So these opportunities allow for men like Michael, Ryan, Mickey, and others to model to us what our prayers before the Lord ought to look like. And Paul's not only concerned that we're focused on the action, of praying and men leading in prayer, but specifically the posture of the one who is praying. He says men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, if you're like me, you see that phrase, lifting holy hands, and you think, well, that's really interesting. What, what does that mean? I don't think it means that men are required to lift their hands when they pray, though they certainly could. I think what Paul is doing is looking back to the Old Testament where lifting up one's hands to the Lord in prayer was closely linked with holiness. That's why it says holy hands. First and foremost, it's with the Lord's holiness. For example, listen to Psalm 28.4. David says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. David lifted up his hands to exalt the God who is already lifted up on his throne. He is holy. But the one who is praying is also himself called to holiness. Psalm 24 pulls these things together when David says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So David recognized that he was not only called to lift up his hands to the Lord in prayer, but to lift up his soul or his very life to the Lord in holiness. So I think this might be what Paul is getting at with this idea of, Lifting holy hands to the Lord in prayer. And I think this is further seen when he calls the men of Ephesus to pray without anger or quarreling. This seems to extend to an overall heart posture, not only in lifting one's hands in prayer, but in relation to others in the church. And once Timothy read later in Paul's letters, in in Paul's letter here, He would understand that these are the kinds of things, anger and quarreling, that characterize the false teachers in Ephesus, the ones who only serve themselves. In 1 Timothy 6, we see that these men are not devoting their hands to the Lord, but rather devoting their hands to stirring up division and causing friction within the body. So we see that the men of the church, what the men of the church are devoting their hands to, meaning how they're living before the Lord. This has a real impact on the overall health of the church. So if I could address the men here this morning and ask you, what are you devoting your hands to? Is it in serving the Lord for his glory, or is it for yourself, for your own glory? Well, man, our passage this morning is telling us that the Lord is calling you, he's calling me, to devote ourselves completely in service to him in every place, both in our church and in our homes. And these are the kinds of leaders that the Lord desires in his church, and we desperately need his help. No, we will not serve him perfectly by any means. But I pray that we would depend upon his spirit as we seek To serve him together. And according to Paul from 1 Timothy 2, this must begin with our posture before the Lord in prayer. So, men, let us lead in lifting our hands in our entire lives to him in humble dependence, trusting in him alone. This is one of the key roles that the Lord has defined for us men in his church. But the Lord doesn't just define unique roles. For men in the church, he also defines unique roles for women. So that both genders, male and female, would understand the different yet complementary ways that they are called to serve the Lord in the local church. Now, when I use this word complementary, I'm referring to the way the Lord has designed male female roles to fit together and to serve each other. So Paul's now shifting from here's what I desire for the men of the church to here's what I desire for the women of the church. Look with me at verses 9 through 10. Likewise, this is for the women. also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So the key command for women in these verses is that they are to adorn themselves. And first, women are called to be adorned with modesty and with self-control. And in this, we see that Paul is primarily concerned with their character. He contrasts modesty and self-control with women who are adorned with Extravagant outward appearances. Now, we also shouldn't see Paul as a legalist who's prohibiting women from braiding their hair, wearing jewelry, or nice clothing altogether. Sisters, if you braided your hair this morning, do not fret. That's not what Paul is saying. Because Paul began with addressing the character of women, specifically modesty and self control, he is mentioning hair, jewelry, and clothing is an illustration, an illustration for what? That a woman's outward appearance ought to bear witness to her inward identity. And in verse 10, verse 10, sorry, we discover that this inward identity is rooted in godliness. So on the flip side, this also means that there is a way to dress and there is a way to conduct oneself in the congregation. That is unbecoming of godliness. Dressing inappropriately or unnecessarily drawing attention to oneself with outward appearance would contradict a woman's profession of godliness. And for a woman's godliness to be more than mere profession, it must be evidenced in the way that she carries herself in the church gathering. And that's why Paul is driving all of this toward a woman being adorned with good works. Because these good works are the true fruit that bears witness to her profession of godliness. Peter describes this very similarly in 1 Peter 3, verse 4. He says, But let your adorning women be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So a godly woman recognizes that there is eternal significance in being adorned with godliness and good works over the fleeting things of this world. And in God's eyes, this is the only true imperishable beauty. And I thank the Lord that this type of godly beauty is being displayed among the women at Redeemer Church. Even as I think of our daughters that are growing up here at Redeemer, they have countless godly female examples in this body. And sisters of Redeemer, I pray that you are encouraged with this, that the loving hospitality that is displayed by this body is due in large part to you living out the godliness that the Lord has worked within you. Brothers, can I get an amen from that? Sisters, your godliness is essential to this church. This is a powerful witness to the watching world, and we all need to pray for the Lord to continue instilling this type of godliness in our women. From this passage, we can be confident that this is what the Lord desires for his church. In 1 Timothy alone, this idea of godliness or godly living appears ten times. And this isn't actually the first time that Paul has described godly living to Timothy. If you remember from our last sermon in 1 Timothy 2.2, godliness was tied to a peaceful and quiet life. And in our passage this morning, Paul makes the same connection when he turns from verse 10 to verse 11. He now takes a broader mark of the church's life, peaceful and quiet living, and applies it specifically toward the women of the church. Look at verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So the specific way that women are instructed to live quietly in the church gathering is in their learning. The word that is translated learn is similar to the word for disciple. And what do we know about disciples from Scripture? Well, we know that these disciples are the Lord's students, those who learn from him and who learn from his word. And this is why this quiet learning is marked by a submissive spirit, primarily to God and to his word. And secondly, submission toward male leadership in the local church. Our passage has already laid out the role of men leading in prayer in verse 8, and now in verse 11, with the emphasis on women learning, it's implied that men are the ones who are leading in teaching as well. And this becomes very clear in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So Paul has now clarified his command for a woman's quietness in the church gathering. Now we need to say this does not mean that women cannot speak in the church gathering altogether. Even just this morning alone, Kelly Bishop served as our scripture reader. And Valerie Todd and Jansen Barnett have helped serve us in singing praises to the Lord. And our weekly gathering is greatly helped by the faithful service of these women like Kelly, Valerie, and Jansen. Now, this quietness in the church has specific parameters, as we see in verse 12, and that's teaching and exercising authority over men. In the next chapter of this letter, which we'll get to in a future sermon, Paul clearly assigns both of these responsibilities, teaching and exercising authority, to the office of elder-slash-overseer. So therefore, Paul's prohibitions for women in teaching and exercising authority in the church gathering, he's speaking of uh, public teaching in the Sunday gathering, where both men and women are present. So this means that there are forms of teaching in the local church where women ought to be serving, and these are open opportunities for them to teach. And in preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of how Timothy himself was perfectly, personally benefited from female examples in his own life. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice had taught him the scriptures from his youth and had modeled sincere faith to him. And in Titus 2, Paul clearly instructs women to teach other women. So this helps us see that Paul is not denying any significant teaching roles that women do and can fulfill in the local church. And at Redeemer, we are blessed to have women like Lindsay Miller and Maggie Sears who are serving in key servant roles that are dedicated to teaching our women and our children. And this week alone, faithful members like Emily Finfrock, Nikki Antle, Melody Delamarter and Katie Thomas will be teaching our children and our youth. So we ought to regularly encourage and celebrate these teaching opportunities for the women of Redeemer. And this helps us to carefully understand passages like this within the broader truth of God's Word. And this helps us to do what we need to do, which is to stand firm upon the Word's teaching on these matters. As Ryan said earlier, in our culture and in the church, the ideas of of male leadership and female submission, these are major stumbling blocks. And many will argue that if we uphold female submission, then we are automatically endorsing abusive male leadership. Now, we do need to pause here because, unfortunately, it is true that there have been many examples of domineering male leadership in the local church. And it's right that we deeply grieve that these things would happen among members of Christ's bride. This is dishonoring to the Lord and his intentions for the church. But that being said, for us to believe that God has defined these gender differences in the church, this does not automatically lead to one gender being sinfully elevated above the other. I think Kevin DeYoung articulates this really well. He has a book called Men and Women in the Church. Here's a quote from his introduction. The biblical pattern of male leadership is never an excuse for ignoring women or abusing women in any way. The truest form of biblical complementarity, that's what we're talking about, these roles fitting together, calls on men to protect women, honor women, speak kindly and thoughtfully to women, and to find every appropriate way to learn from them and include them in life and ministry in the home and in the church. I think we can completely affirm what DeYoung is saying, and only by the sp- only by the power of the Spirit can men humbly lead in this way. And so we must pray that by God's grace, Redeemer Church would continue to grow into a beautiful expression of God's biblical pattern for men and for women. Because these truths of gender differences are just as true for us today here in Graham, Texas, as they were in Ephesus. And that's why I'm burdened this morning to help you see that in his church, God advances His aim for complementary male-female relationships. This isn't just Paul's cultural hobby horse that was only relevant to Timothy and the Ephesians. And in order to protect us from wrongly drawing that conclusion, Paul takes us all the way back to where His aim for, where God's aim for the church began, and that's the Garden of Eden. That brings us to our second point: God designed gender differences in creation. God designed gender differences in creation. So he's defined them in the church which points back to his design in creation. By rooting his argument in creation, Paul demonstrates that his vision of male-female relationships it's not of his own design. This is God's design and it's been so from the very beginning. Verse 13 says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. So Paul's clearly looking back to Genesis 2, 7, which says, Then the Lord God formed the man, Adam, of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and this man became a living creature. It's this image of God forming the man, forming Adam. And scripture often uses the imagery of a potter shaping clay, the Lord being the potter and his children being clay. Isaiah 64.8 is a great example of this. It says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Genesis 2.7 shows us that this beautiful work of God's hand began with Adam. But it didn't end there. In Genesis 2.18, which Kelly read for us this morning, the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So Eve was created as a perfect match for Adam. And I'm not talking about a match in a cute way like peanut butter and jelly, or even like Aragorn and Arwen from Lord of the Rings, but a match in the most profound way possible, a match that God formed and fit together in the very beginning. And it's a match that he himself called very good. And it was so perfect a match that even Adam himself immediately burst into song when he first sees Eve This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam sees this. He sees God's design. Could we possibly have a more beautiful description of this complementary union between men and women? Beloved, the differences between men and women, I hope you're seeing these things aren't accidental. They are purposeful. And again, we need to hold fast to this truth, especially in the day and age that we live, in the day and age that our children are growing up in. To quote Kevin DeYoung again, he says, Is there any one aspect of human life that has affected every other aspect of human life more than being male and female? I think that the answer to that question is no. Nothing else affects us more as humans than being male and female because this is what it means for us to be created in God's image, to be a reflection of who he is. And I hope that from our passage this morning, we are all clearly seeing the truth of humanity that God displays in and through his church. And for us to see that there is no other institution in the world that grounds its understanding of humanity in God's design from creation. This is the local church's unique mission, to ground the design of humanity in creation. And that means against all the lies that our culture hurls against gender, against humanity, the church confesses the only truth about humanity from Scripture. And that is that the Creator God masterfully designed gender differences From the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. But in that very same garden, our first parents rebelled against God and against his design. Join me in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul was previously in Genesis 2, talking about creation. Now he's thinking about Genesis 3, talking about the fall into sin. Satan, the crafty serpent, deceives Eve into believing that God's truth is actually a lie. Now by highlighting Eve's deception, is Paul intending to single out Eve as the only one guilty of sin? Some have concluded from this verse that Paul sees women as more susceptible to deception than men. But I hope you agree with me that that conclusion is off the table. Because first of all, other verses in scripture, like Revelation 12:9 for example, identify Satan as the deceiver of the whole world. So this means that men and women alike across all time have been deceived by that ancient serpent. And second, in Romans 5, Paul, the same author as 1 Timothy, clearly assigns the spread of sin and death to Adam. So in Paul saying that Adam was not deceived, this cannot mean that he is clearing Adam from sin in the garden. Even Genesis 3 itself tells us that Adam was standing there with Eve when she was tempted by the serpent. So what should we think then? Well, I think the clearest way to understand Paul's statement in verse 14 is he's simply following the narrative of Genesis 3. The serpent doesn't come to Adam first. The serpent comes to Eve. And in highlighting Eve's deception, Paul is not saying anything about Eve that she did not say herself. When she answers back to God in Genesis 3.13, Eve says, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Do you remember how Adam responded to God in the previous verse? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Well, who's taking leadership in this moment, the very moment where sin first enters the world? It's not Adam which is really interesting given that Paul has just told us Adam was created first as a sign of his God-designed role to lead. So how do we best understand what's going on then in verse 14 with, with the rest of this passage? Well, I don't think I can answer this question better than Tom Schreiner. Over the years, he has helped me understand God's word so much better and I'm so grateful to him and I think he can help us This morning, he says, In approaching Eve, the servant subverted, that means turns upside down, the pattern of male leadership and interacted only with the woman. Adam was present throughout and did not intervene. Eve took the initiative in responding to the serpent and Adam let her do so. So the appeal to Genesis 3 reminds readers of what happens when humans undermine God's ordained pattern. Beloved, this is the pattern of humanity for the church that was established in creation. And when this pattern was broken by Adam and Eve in the garden, sin entered the world and God's design for humanity was turned upside down. But there is a hope that remains for God's people. We get a glimpse of this hope in the beginning of verse 15 in a small, powerful word. And that is the word yet. First Timothy two fifteen says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. With self control. Now, allow me to just be transparent for you with a moment. For me in my study, this was the most difficult verse in this passage to sort through. And I'm grateful for your prayers for me, and the Lord answered them by humbling me and helping me to see that I need Him and I need His help. And we all need His help this morning if we are to understand His Word. So if the Lord would be so merciful to us, I hope to pass along the help that I have received from the Lord and from others who have faithfully studied this passage before me. Now we have arrived at this phrase, she will be saved through childbearing. At first glance, we might think that Paul is still talking about Eve, just continuing the discussion in Genesis. But if we look closely, we see that Paul is now speaking in the future. In verses 13 to 14, Paul speaks of events in the past, how man and woman were formed, how the woman was deceived, how she became a transgressor. Now in verse 15, he speaks of an event in the future, how the woman will be saved. So it seems most natural to read this as Paul shifting toward the continuous calling upon women in general and not only with Eve. And why is Paul so specific to mention childbearing? From the very beginning, this has been the most profound difference between men and women. Only women were created to bear children, which to our culture sounds insane. But that's what Scripture is telling us. And one reference that I, one resource that I studied helped me see how this would have actually addressed some of the issues that Timothy was facing in Ephesus. If we look later in 1 Timothy 4, Paul refers to false teachers, so he's talking about these false teachers again, in Ephesus who were forbidding marriage. But Paul rejects this teaching in 1 Timothy 4 by saying that everything created by God is good. And so Paul needs Timothy to teach the Ephesians that marriage, and by extension, childbearing, is an essential component of God's good creation for humanity. But what about the fact that Paul ties this to salvation? Seems kind of strange, right? Saved through childbearing. What, what is Paul saying? Well, we know from earlier in 1 Timothy 2 that Paul is has clearly taught that the only way to salvation is through the mediator. It's through the man, Christ Jesus, the one who shed his blood for our sins. So this means without a shadow of a doubt, Paul is not contradicting himself and not not saying that salvation doesn't come through Christ. He believes that salvation comes through Christ alone. And I think Paul is speaking to Ephesian women that Christ has already saved. And remember, he's speaking of this salvation through childbearing in the future sense. But we must also be careful to say that Paul is not teaching that women can't be saved in the future If they don't bear children, this would wrongly and hurtfully exclude women who either remain single or women who are unable to have children of their own. Rather, Paul is calling women to embrace their God given design. And this must also include the uniquely motherly traits that all women made in the image of God possess and also women who bear spiritual children through discipleship in the local church. These women are being faithful to this calling as well. So please hear me clearly when I say that Christ's salvation is available to all, regardless if they are married or have children of their own. And that's why Paul ends with this key qualifying statement so he won't be misunderstood on this point. He says, if they, that is women, continue in faith, And love and holiness with self control. So, at the conclusion of this passage, Paul ties his whole argument together by saying that women must not only adorn themselves in godliness and in good works, but abide in them. Specifically, faith, love, holiness, and self control. And sisters, there is only one way to abide in these good works, to abide in this godliness. Jesus says in John 15, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So ladies, abide in the one who lived perfectly in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. The one who was not deceived by the serpent's temptations. The one who embodies true godliness. Abide in Jesus Christ. Now, although Paul is here making specific applications toward women, we know that he also believes this to be the calling upon all believers in Jesus Christ, both male and female. We must all abide in Christ, seeking to live in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, from Schreiner, he says, Abiding in godly virtues and obeying apostolic instruction, that is, the instructions of Paul, is necessary for salvation in the future, right, of our salvation that is yet to come in one sense. They are necessary because they function as the evidence of new life in Christ. Again, those who are already saved, persevering through obedience. Redeemer, we must all persevere by the power of the Spirit in this new life that we have received. So as we conclude our time in the Word this morning, I want us to understand that in 1 Timothy 2, 8-15, Paul is giving specific instructions for church life to those who have already been changed by the truths of the passage before it. Those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself as a ransom for his church. As we sang earlier about this ransom church, it is made up of ransomed men and women who can only grow in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this sanctified obedience is displayed in the mutual partnership of men and women in their God-ordained roles. Then and only then will God's aim for his image, male and female, be advanced in the life of the church. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word that is good or that is beneficial, that is holy on every single page. Lord, we thank you that you help us by your spirit. And we pray that you would help us as Redeemer Church to depend upon your spirit as we seek to live in obedience to the way that you have called us to live. And would we be a, a faithful, though imperfect, example of who you are to the watching world. Lord, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.